Hey there, I'm Grace. And I'm Amelia. And welcome to the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast, where we talk about getting started in real estate, scaling, and we give you the inside scoop about our day-to-days as full-time investors. Did you know that self-managing your rental properties can save you thousands of dollars and give you a better performing portfolio? So stop leaving money on the table. Property Management Academy is a self-paced course that teaches you step-by-step how to self-manage your own real estate properties so that you can confidently self-manage. Check out the PMA course on our website, womeninvestinrealestate.com slash PMA. Hey, everybody. This is Grace and Amelia giving a quick intro of Rachel before we get started. This is a really special guest, so we wanted to make sure we told you all about her. Yes. So, and we both personally met Rachel at BP Con last year in 2022, and she's just an amazing person. She's so easy to get along with and just totally down to earth. So, like Grace said, a very special guest. But Rachel is a real estate investor. She's a best selling author. She is also a former financial advisor, and she's also known as Money Honey Rachel if you follow her on Instagram or have seen her on the internet. And she really makes the topic of money in entertaining, fun, and simple for tons of her millennial followers. Yes, so we're excited to get right in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Wire Podcast. Today, we're very, very excited because we have an amazing guest, Rachel Richards, on. And we both love her, as you heard in the introduction to this episode. But Rachel, we want to start out at the beginning of your entrepreneurship journey. So can you take us back to 2014, 2015, Rachel? Where were you at and kind of how did you get started in entrepreneurship and real estate? in general. For sure. I was miserable in 2014 (laughs) and 2015 because, you know, I was a recent graduate and I had all these high hopes for how my life would look and I was supposed to be making a bunch of money and all this stuff. And then of course, as we we all get that reality check, or at least I did after graduating. And I started off making $36,000 and then $32,000 and then $42,000. So I was not making a lot of money. And I was also working as an assistant to a realtor. And this woman was toxic. She was a bully. She was emotionally abusive. She made me cry several times. And it wasn't just me. Okay. It was her other employees too. She made other people cry. (laughs) But I just remember being in that workplace and feeling so belittled and so stupid all the time and feeling like I was underpaid and feeling like I was meant for so much more. And it was a hard year. I had already been learning about real estate investing, but I also was starting to get sick of myself because I was learning and learning and learning and I was talking about wanting to do it, but I wasn't doing it. And I just, I hit this moment. It was like this, this enough is enough moment where she was mean to me another time. And I was looking in the bathroom mirror crying. And I just thought to myself, this is it. I'm not going to let her treat me like this for one more day. Like I am going to find a way to buy a rental property this year. And I think within six months After that, I made an offer on my first rental property and closed on it in the beginning of 2017. Wow. I love that you said you were getting sick of yourself, first of all, because I think we've all been there. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, either buck up or shut up. Like, you know, like I get that way with myself too. And I know Grace does as well. So I love that you're vulnerable about that. And also like you weren't making a ton of money, which is so relatable. You don't have to be rich to get started investing. Yeah. And I think people, sorry, like hear my story, you know, scaled to zero to 38 doors in under three years, blah, blah, blah. 
and make a lot of assumptions. But the the truth is I am not a trust fund baby and I never made six figures from a job or a career ever. So I started off with $10,000 saved. And if I can go from like that situation to where I am now, then everybody else can do the same thing. I really do believe that anyone at any age on any income can achieve financial independence. One of my first, I think my second property, I had to save $9,000 for the down payment. And that was like such a huge task and to achieve it and write that check was so crazy. And to now be here and look back on like, remember when $9,000 was my entire savings? Like, I bet you never thought that with that first $10,000, like, oh, I'm in a five, seven years, I'm going to be on a podcast talking about this with how many properties and how many books and all these things. So what is that feeling like to like relive that past? version of you. That's true. Oh my gosh. It's so surreal because also those few years between 2015 and 2018, I have never worked harder in my life. And I worked so hard then to now not work so hard. And I almost can't even remember what that was like. Like I look back and I can logically recall those memories of literally working 80 hours a week for two to three years because I was working full time. I was investing in real estate, acquiring properties, managing my own tenants for most of it, even when I had 20, 30, 40 doors. And I was writing books in the evenings and, you know, staying up late, being stressed out, turning down social invites, being frugal. So I wasn't buying anything. All my friends were living these more extravagant lifestyles and I was living very modestly. All the sacrifice that I made early on, and that's hard to do in your early 20s. And now my lifestyle is like a 180. It's, it's It's just so weird. I feel like my mentality hasn't even caught up to like the reality of what my lifestyle is now. I'm still really frugal when I don't need to be. <laughs> I know, but it's like all that hard work is so worth it. Like it's so worth the freedom now. Like Grace and I are not quite where you're at, but like we both work for ourselves and like just the ability to not have to report to anyone. It's so worth all those long hours and that time that you put in. Yeah. So yeah. worth it. No regrets. Yeah. Okay. So take us through your first rental property it was the first one a boarding style property. No, it was a duplex that I just had long-term tenants in. And okay. and also, by the way, I do want to clarify, I did scale my real estate empire with my ex-husband. So I didn't do it alone. And it did help to have a partner in some ways. He was a 50-50 partner financially and in terms of putting in effort to this. So that is one advantage I had. I always want to be transparent about like, here's the advantages I had and the ones I didn't have. So that was a big help. So the second property we bought was a boarding house. We got that first duplex and then we we were like, let's go, let's keep going. So we were just ready to make a big jump. We found this property on the MLS and it was listed for $450,000. And you all are familiar with the 1% rule. So I'll explain it for any listeners who might not be familiar. A property should rent for 1% per month of the list price. So if it's listed for 450 grand, ideally you want it to rent for 4,500 a month just a guideline to make sure it's going to be profitable. So 4500 a month. Now this property, the MLS said it was bringing in 72 or $7,600 a month, something like that. So you're so like, what like, the hell's going on here? Yeah. I was like, is, is there a mistake here? What's 
what's happening here. So I called the list agent and I was like, is this legit? And he's like, yeah, why don't you come down and we'll show you, you know, how this is being operated. So we went down there and they showed us this unique, what I call the boarding house model. And what the sellers had done is this was a fourplex. And instead of renting it out to four tenants, they were renting out each bedroom individually. And there were actually 12 bedrooms in this whole fourplex. So they had 12 tenants. Each bedroom was furnished and leased independently. And then the tenants shared the common areas like the kitchens and the bathrooms. The best part is, is that they were providing affordable housing to the tenants. And this was all in Louisville, Kentucky. So tenants were only paying $600 a month so, so cheap. They got a fully furnished bedroom and that included utilities and Wi-Fi. So 600 a month. That's as affordable as it gets. I know. And then the owners, on the other hand, the sellers were making a ton of cash flow. They were bringing in seven, eight grand a month in revenue. And so it was a win-win for everybody. So we saw this and we were like, oh my gosh, there's no question about this. We need to buy this property. So we bought that one. Then we bought another boarding house from those same people. And then we bought a third huge duplex that we converted into a boarding house on our own, which was the best deal we did because we bought it for like 125 grand. And then we were pulling in like seven grand a month in revenue. It was crazy. (laughs) When you say you converted, is that just furnishing or what else went into that? We added walls in to create way more bedrooms and we added in two more bathrooms to support the number of people that were going to be living there. So it was like a $40,000 renovation. Okay. Like who are the people that are renting these boarding house rooms and like, how long are they staying for? Are they like week to week, month to month? What were you seeing? Like, was it a lot of extra legwork to manage these? Was the juice worth the squeeze (laughs) is what I'm trying to get at. It was. Okay. Lots of great questions. So it was worth it because of where we were at in our journey at the time. We didn't have money. We were willing to hustle. We were starting out in our real estate investing journey. We were willing to work hard to make that enormous amount of cash flow. I've What I've seen in real estate investing is that the more time you spend, the more money you make, obviously. So stuff like Airbnbs, where it's going to be more hands-on, typically that's more lucrative. Same thing with the boarding house. It's a lot more hands-on. It's less passive, but you're going to make way more money. And then on the other side, if you have a long-term tenant, that's way more passive. It's way less work, but you're not going to make as much money. So for us, where we were, we were willing to hustle to make all this cash flow, and it worked out well. Now, as for the types of tenants we had, we actually did not have like college students. A lot of people are like, did you have a lot of college students? No, we didn't. It was really a lot of blue collar people, people who worked in labor, manufacturing, stuff like that. It was 99% men. It was just people that had low, low income and needed a safe, clean, easy place to live and just didn't have a lot of money. And they were, you know, for the most part, really great guys. Do you have any crazy stories about any of the tenants or like any funny stories? Of course I do. I mean, we had more evictions on the boarding houses. (laughs) Actually, I don't think we had any evictions on any of our other houses. They were class C properties. There was one of the evictions, this guy disappeared couldn't get a hold of him, found out he was in jail. And then we had to go through the eviction process to legally evict and do things the right way, even though some people wouldn't have done that and maybe it wasn't worth it. But I thought you were going to say you found out he had died. And I was going to say, oh, that's that's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Most people would just be like, okay, your stuff's gone and 
and you're out now. Yeah. And maybe we should have done that in hindsight, but I was a new landlord and I was like a rule follower and I was like, I don't want to get in trouble. We had a couple small fires happen, which scared the crap out of me. Nothing, no one was hurt, nothing major. I also remember my first time starting to manage the tenants at the first boarding house we bought. And they were also polite and they called me Miss Rachel and everything. (laughs) It was so cute. But you know, these are just guys. Some of them are older, some are young and immature. And I'm a non-confrontational person. And I remember the first time I had to go confront a tenant. And I don't remember what it was about cleaning the room or giving us rent or something. But I practiced in my mirror at home what I was going to say to this guy because I was so nervous about it. And I remember going to the boarding house and like holding my hands behind my back because my hands were shaking. And I was like, he can't (laughs) see me shaking. Like I'm his landlord. And I was like, listen, you need to whatever. And like, just tried to fake it and act with confidence. But I was just so timid and young back then. I I mean, I quickly got used to that. But that's the kind of stuff you just have to fake it till you make it when you start out. (laughs) I remember the first time I had to like call someone and give them a little bit of a chewing. I had it written out on my phone, like what I was going (laughs) to say. And I was like, Oh, my God, my voice is shaking. Like they can they can definitely hear it. Yeah. And it was to like a 55 year old dude. And I was like 23. Yeah. But he listened. <laughs> yeah. Basically. So funny. So many funny stories. <laughs> so, how did you manage like the common spaces? Did you have a cleaner come in? Yeah. How did that work? We had cleaners come in once a week and they would clean the kitchens, bathrooms, laundry areas, hallways, all of the common spaces. We had cameras in the common areas as well. Of course, not in the bathrooms or um, rooms. But we had them in the laundry areas and kitchens and the exterior of the properties. And another thing I want to say too is that with these boarding houses, you have to make sure you have the right permitting and licenses to operate them. There's a lot of things you have to check. You have to check with the city to make sure you can have the number of people in a house that you that you're trying to have. Like sometimes there's limits on the number of unrelated people that can live in one house. So that's something you have to check. Or just the total of number of people that you can rent to in one property. Sometimes there's like fire things that you have to follow. And if there's so many people in one property, maybe you have to hire, have an automatic sprinkler system. You have to check with zoning. You have to check with permitting, licensing, all this different stuff. Because it would be a shame to try to buy a property and and want to make it a boarding house and then find out after the fact, oh, actually, you can't do what you thought you were wanting to do. So it's, I just wanted to put that out there before I forget. What were the, that's a really good point. What were the top few things you'd hear over and over or have to deal with over and over again with these tenants? You know, it was like having 35 adult children and they would just bicker all the time and complain about each other. Like so-and-so was doing laundry last night because there's quiet hours. You're not supposed to use the laundry in the middle of the night or so-and-so was smoking in his room. And we, of course, we have a strict no smoking policy. So-and-so ate my food out of the fridge. And it was like, oh my gosh, trying to manage these guys was so annoying. And we did event, yeah, like guys, come on. We did eventually sell the three boarding houses for a lot of reasons. One of them being we got to a point where we had money and we were sick of dealing with this and we wanted to have more passive income streams. So, you know, they served their purpose for us, made us a ton of money. And then we were like, okay, this is really annoying. So let's move on to something more passive. Mm-hmm. And how long did you have those boarding houses from the first to when you sold the last? Three to four years total. Okay. So after you sold those, where did your journey go from there? 
At that point, I started learning about syndications, which is my favorite way to invest. Yeah. And we actually wanted to talk to you about that. So this would be a oh, great gosh, way perfect. to talk about Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, we haven't talked about that yet. And it's like, it's the ultimate passive income. So yes, I think, well, it, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think investing in syndications is the only way to directly own real estate. That's 100% passive. Okay. Like I don't know of any other way. You can indirectly, you can invest in REITs, fundraise, whatever, but that's indirect. It's not the same as you actually own real estate. So that's what I think. So in terms of what is a syndication, a syndication is when an investor goes and finds, let's say a $10 million apartment complex as an example, because anything can be syndicated, mobile home park, self-storage, laundromat, whatever. So $10 million apartment complex, let's say she can't purchase it on her own. So she can form a syndication and a syndication allows her to raise money from private investors, people like you and me. And then we can invest in this syndication and own the apartment complex as well. So we're not just lending her our money and making back interest. We are actually investing in the apartment complex and we are now a part equity owner. We're a part owner. So we are entitled to a share of the profits. If it's sold, we're entitled to a share of the profits upon sale. And that's how it works. It's really, really cool. Once you do the due diligence of you know finding a trustworthy syndicator, finding a good deal, looking over all the financials and you decide, I want to invest in this and you send your money in, it is completely hands-off. You don't do anything after that. You're, you know, you're not in charge for, of finding the deal, finding the tenants, managing the renovations, making any decisions. You're a silent partner. So after you sent your money in, then you just get a quarterly distribution for however long the syndication is. Normally it's five years could be three, seven, 10, but that is in a nutshell what a syndication is and how it works for those listening. From when you first heard of like a syndication and we're like, what is that? To when you invested, how long was that? Not very long. And honestly, I was way too quick to invest into my first syndication. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the questions to ask. And fortunately, my first syndication investment wasn't horrible. It wasn't very good, but it wasn't horrible. I'm not losing money. I'm just not making as much as I would have liked. And I think I invested in my first one in 2020 or the end of, yeah, 2020. So I've been investing in them for three years now, and I'm now invested in 10 syndications as LP, limited partner. Oh my gosh, look at you go. That's amazing. Do you I feel just want like- all of my money from syndications to be <laughs> no. completely passive. <laughs> I'm like, do you feel like that's kind of the way you're leaning? I know that right now you're house hacking in Denver, which is amazing, mm-hmm. or in the Denver area. But do you feel like as far as real estate goes, you'll tend to lean more towards syndications moving forward? Yeah, I think so. Because my goals over time have changed. Whereas in the beginning, when I had less money and more time, I was willing to work more for it. And now, you know, fortunately, I have more money now. And my time is more important to me. It's a more valuable resource for me. So I'm always looking for ways to protect it. So the more passive the income stream is, the better. And even if I make less on my syndications than I would from going out and buying my own rentals, I'm okay with that trade-off right now because I would rather have my time. And speaking of your time, I think we've skipped over a massive part of your journey, which is the Money Honey Rachel brand and books and all of that good stuff that you were building alongside investing in real estate, eventually syndication. So how did that play in? What was that journey like along with your real estate? 
Uh, yeah, thank you for asking. It was very unintentional. And I didn't think I was going to start a business at all. So I wanted to be an author and I wanted to write a book. And in 2017, I used to be a financial advisor as well. So I was always into personal finance, investing, helping people with that. That's what I love to do. So I quit that job at some point, but all my family and friends came to me for financial advice, which I loved. And I began to wonder, well, why aren't they you know, learning and reading books and listening to podcasts, doing the stuff that I do. And then I had this aha moment where I realized, oh yeah, personal finance is boring and it's overwhelming and it's intimidating and it sucks. No wonder people don't like to learn about it. So I thought to myself, well, how can I write a book that makes it sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from, my first book. So I wrote that book. It was just a passion project for me. It was not something I intended or thought I would make money off of. It was just something I felt compelled to do. And I published that at the end of 2017, thinking I was going to lose money. I was like, any money I put into this, I'll probably lose. So I'm going to keep it minimal because I didn't have any money at the time. So I spent $561 to launch the book. And I was like, bye, $561, never see you again. Uh, but I did make that back up in the first month of sales. And then I made like a thousand a month and then 1500 a month and it kept growing. And I was like, oh my God, I think I wrote a good book. So that was a shock to me still to this day. Crazy. And that then fascinates me. I like want to know too. all the yeah. things I'm like, yeah, how did you even get eyes on that? Like, cause you self published this book. I know that like how, what were the avenues of marketing? Did you pay, have paid ads? Like what were you doing to sell this book? Yeah, that's a great question, Amelia. And a lot of people think that I had my platform first before I wrote the book. And that's not what happened. It was the other way around. I wrote the book with no email subscribers, no website, no Instagram, like nothing. That all came out. That all happened because of the book, not before the book. So the, what I did though, is because I was such a nerd about personal finance and loved it so much is I was in some Facebook groups that weren't even about finance. One of them was maybe about politics, but there was a lot of female millennials. Every now and then a finance question would come up and I would say, hey, I'm Rachel. I'm a former financial advisor. Here's what I think. And I did it truly from a place of wanting to help. And just because I was passionate about it, I didn't even have the idea for the book in my head at the time. This is how I would spend my free time. Okay. If this tells you, like I was such a nerd and I still am. That's how I spend my free time helping people on the internet with finance. So I just did that enough that I gained credibility in these Facebook groups. And after long enough, people started like pointing to me as the finance guru in these Facebook groups. So then when someone would ask a question, they'd say, oh, you need to ask Rachel. And they would tag me like, Rachel's our finance girl. And so then when I came up with the idea for the book, I was like, hey guys, here's what I'm thinking. What do you all think? And they were like, oh my gosh, yes, you make finance so easy to understand. You should write a book. And so inadvertently, those groups kind of turned into my launch teams because I didn't have a launch team. I was like, no one knows who I am. No one's going to care. But I had their support and they were kind of emotionally invested in the success of my book. So that's how I... That's my only theory. I think that's why they were successful starting off. That's crazy. And what a cool story. I did not know that about your book launch. Yeah, thank you. Wild. And here I am today and I've built a business out of it. And it's really cool. It's cool to be able to help people do the same thing. 
we will link your book in the show notes too, by the way. So if anyone wants to check it out, it'll be in the show notes. Is it called Money Honey? Ra- what is it? No, it's not. Yeah, the, it is. The first one's called Money Honey. Yeah. It's money and my money. my second one is Passive Income Aggressive Retirement. Yes. The first time I ever saw your name was because your book was in my house. My sister bought it. Oh my God. I didn't know that. Yes. And yeah. I was like, oh, cool. Like I, that was like my real estate started with being really interested in personal finance. So I was like, oh, cool a female written book because there weren't a ton. And I think I probably saw you on Instagram and then like connected the dots and then started following you. And now I know obviously a lot more about you. And, but that's just so cool. Like literally the first time I saw your name was from the book. Oh my God. That's crazy. From the book. Wow. I love that. That's so cool. (laughs) So, okay. So you have your book revenue that I'm like, I love hearing about how many streams of revenue entrepreneurs have. So I'm like trying to count in my head. I'm like, okay, you've got your books, you've got personal real estate that you own, you've got syndications, Mm -hmm. you have- I have our fingers out. We're counting. Um, Yeah. Number four (laughs) is online courses. Five is affiliate income. Six is like, I have some dividend and interest income. Seven is I have a print on demand income stream. And then always forget one. You have like coaching. Do you put that in your courses? I'm just trying to think of the passive income streams right now. I have active income streams too. Okay. Passive. So that's, I I think I'm forgetting one. In terms of active income streams, I have coaching. I have my mastermind and I have sponsorships that I do like on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else. So Yeah. Let's talk more about that because you started with your book, which I feel like is super counterintuitive. Like you said, most people would probably build the platform, start the coaching courses, then a book. You whipped a book out of your ass to start (laughs) and then went back, not backwards, but opposite. So then at what point were you like, okay, this is a community. It's not a book. Well, in 2019, by 2019 is when my ex and I had 38 doors and we were making 10K a month in profits from our real estate. So we achieved financial independence through real estate. That And by that time, I was ready to quit my job. So I quit my job, didn't need my job anymore. We were making more than enough money. And so I was just like, well, I'll just focus on doing more of this business stuff. And I had published my second book around that time. So I was like, okay, well, let me focus on this. This is fun. That was what was fulfilling to me. I didn't need to keep doing it, but I wanted to. So then I decided to create a course. That was my next step. Because a lot of people, what I was hearing from people, it's really important to listen to your followers. What are their problems? What are they asking questions about? What are they, you know, complaining about that they're continually running into their obstacles, their struggles. So you have to listen and then you create things that help them with those problems. So one of the big complaints is like, well, I have the knowledge, you know, I've been reading stuff. I've been learning what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Like, I feel like I need more accountability. I feel like I need someone to hold my hand and sort of guide me through. So I figured I'll make a course. I'll create something with more accountability and more structure to help them actually implement what they're learning and take action. So that was my next step from there. And I I just feel like I've just made everything up as I've gone with my business. I don't know. I've, I'm the worst business person. I, I'm not strategic. No, we I haven't just... beat there. 
<laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you should listen to our <laughs> conversations. Oh I mean, I didn't have a website until a year after I launched my book. I've done everything backwards, but in a way, it saved me a lot of money. And I think because I listen to my people so well, and then I create something for them, it's actually worked for me rather it, than like I don't know. I've just backed into it. Yeah, something well, like that. And also, I feel like sometimes people get so hung up on the wrong details that they don't actually yes. end up implementing anything and doing anything like yeah it's like who cares about spending five thousand dollars on a logo or a website design uh, right. if you're not generating revenue yet right Stop. or the first the first people are like i ordered my business cards it's like i've okay. never had a business card I know. i'm like <laughs> honestly who cares like that's not even that's not just not going to move the needle at all yeah the the dollars dollars should only be spent on revenue new generating activities. Business cards don't generate revenue, right? Maybe ad spend generates revenue, but I, and I've always been very strategic about that and run a very lean business that way, which has helped me be very successful. So I know I said I'm a bad business person, but I think in some ways I'm a really good business person and I've had a lot of success because I'm very intentional about what I do and don't do and spend my money on. I agree. I love all of this information. Amelia, it looked like you were just about to ask a question. Well, I was going to say, okay, so we've talked about Money Honey Rachel and that brand and real estate, and we got to get to the big elephant in the room, which is your divorce. And I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But oh, we, I'm an open book. We can yeah, beat a dead let's, horse. <laughs> let's talk about that. And then just like moving forward, where are you at now? Yeah, for sure. What do you want to know? I'll tell you whatever. I'll so tell you at what point... <laughs> Okay, so 2019, you quit your job and you mm -hmm. were making 10K a month and you were still with your ex at that point. Mm -hmm. So when did the divorce happen and did you sell all of your properties? And then what did you do with your portion of the money? I guess are the questions I have. Okay, so we got divorced in 2022. And it was in April 2022 is when we first separated and our divorce was legally finalized in October 2022. And by that time, we had already sold the boarding houses, which were most of our doors the year before. So it was not divorce related or anything like that. So we only had like five doors that kind of got divided up. He walked away with a single family house. I walked away with a duplex. And then we sold the other properties and split the proceeds of those. Okay. So that's how it worked. And the joke that I make is, you know, because I'm like zero to 38 doors in three years. And now then it was like 38 doors to two doors in one year. <laughs> Follow divorce. me for more real. Yeah. Why? <laughs> divorce. No. Follow me for more real estate investing. <laughs> I remember feeling so lame about it at one point because I had this big empire and I was teaching people. And then all of a sudden I had two doors and I was like, this feels so lame. Like how, how am I supposed to be a credible person now? But of course it doesn't take away from what I achieved, right? I still did what I did and it doesn't matter how many doors somebody has. So right. It's not um, a zero sum. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I used to kind of feel self-conscious about that, I think, but I, I don't anymore. I'm confident in what I've done. I still have the knowledge and the experience and that can't be taken away. So mm -hmm. I'm like, man, this is kind of sounding good. I'm like leaning towards selling all my properties and just putting money <laughs> in syndications. Like yeah, it's nice. It's so nice. And the reason I have this house hack now in Denver is because I wanted to have a home base in Denver. I was a nomad for so long, full-time nomad, just traveling all over. That was really great. I did realize I wanted a home base in Denver. And so as a real estate investor, I was like, what's the most cost efficient 
smart way of doing this. I will house hack. And now I'm living in Denver for free and making money because I have this fourplex here. And so that's the reason I bought another property, but I don't think I'm going to buy any more after this. It's just going to be syndications. I want that mailbox money. No I don't want to work. Let's walk through the numbers on your current house hack then since it's yeah. fresh in your mind. And I know it wasn't it a duplex when you bought it. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Let's go through this because this is interesting. It's so fun. Oh my gosh. It yeah. has just reignited my, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's reignited my passion. I'm sitting in my kitchen. Well, it's kind of a mess, but it's reignited my passion for real estate investing because it had been so long since I bought a property. And I was like, this is so fun. I'm so good at it. And I forgot. I was like, oh, I love right? it. I know. I keep <laughs> I watching. I'm like, I love watching you on Instagram. Yeah. And like the money you're making from some of them are midterm rentals. And like, I'm like, yes, get that money. Like, thank you. <laughs> of course, just, you know, two days ago, I stuck my hand down the toilet hole. We can talk about that, but it's good and bad, which we'll, we'll talk about. So I bought this duplex. It was a side-by-side duplex with a full unfinished basement. And I went under contract in January of this year, January, 2023. And it was, I think the sellers originally listed for like 865 way before a few months before, and it wasn't selling. I ended up getting it for 780 with a $30,000 seller's concession. So effectively like 750. And I have done a $200,000 renovation to turn it into a fourplex. So I took that unfinished basement and turned it into two more units. I knew I was going to do this from the very beginning because the setup was perfect. The unfinished basement units both had an exterior walkout straight to the outside. Holy shit. Yeah. So it made it very easy to just finish it. And then all the tenants have their own exits. Um, And that's what I did. Okay. So like you bought it basically for seven fifty because you had the thirty thousand. What kind of financing did you get on it? I got a thirty year conventional mortgage, fifteen percent down. Okay, nice. What was your interest rate? I think six point seven five percent, and I got a temporary two one buy down. So for two years, I have a temporary buy down on the interest rate. That's actually what the thirty thousand dollars seller's concession went towards. Okay. Because I didn't want to spend so much money to get a permanent buy down, knowing that hey, if interest rates go down, I'll just refinance. Mm-hmm. So it helps to have this temporary buy down for two years only, and then hopefully sometime in the next two years I'll refinance. But what's cool about this temporary temporary 2-1 buy down is that if I do refinance before two years, I get a refund of that concession. Like I get any unused, does that make sense? I get any unused portion of that back. So it's not wasted. I've never heard of that, but that's smart. Yeah. So I was like, there's no downside to refinance like because you have 200k and yeah upgrades so are you Mm -hmm. doing is this a burr house hack it wasn't the original plan was not for it to be a burr because it doesn't make for a great burr but when i when i do refinance because i think if interest rates do go down it'll make sense to do that and also it'll make sense to get my renovation money out at least it's not going to be a perfect burr, but I be I will be able to get my 200k back out that I've put in for mm-hmm. for the renovation, which will be nice because then I can invest into more syndications with that. So okay, so be, from following you are all so you're living in one of the units. Mm-hmm. There's three others. Are you doing MTR in all three of those, or are you doing a combo of LTR, MTR, STR? What's that look like? Yeah, nothing's happened the way I thought it was going to happen, which is fine. Everything's great, but I try to let people know that. You have to be flexible and just things don't always happen the way you think they're going to. Never in real estate. Yeah. Yeah, I was just (laughs) saying, never. (laughs) 
I think, I don't even remember the original plan. I think I was going to have two short-term rentals and then one medium term. And then, oh, look who didn't do their homework well enough. I found out I couldn't do two short-term rentals in the city that I live in. Thought I did my homework, didn't do my homework. So long story short, I have one long-term tenant, one medium-term tenant, and one Airbnb. So I'm doing a little bit of everything. So far, my long-term unit is rented for $400 more than what I projected per month. My medium term is rented for 150 more than what I projected. And my Airbnb has poop water all over all over it. <laughs> and I haven't launched it yet. So that one's going really well, great. Shit, literally. <laughs> well, shit. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, it's fine. but that's it's great. Says something too about like running your numbers conservatively. Yeah. Like, because then when it's over what you think it's going to be, it's like, it's a party. It's even better. Yeah. Cause I think I had projected I was going to bring in $8,000 a month in revenue when I was not living here and had my unit rented out as well and 6% cash on cash ROI. And I literally think I'll get 8K in revenue even when I am living here just wow. from the other three units. And so even with these two units that are rented right now, I'm break even on this property. So I'm living in Denver for free right now. And I still have a vacant Airbnb unit that's not being rented yet. I'm very I happy. That feels good. It feels good. Yeah. And Question, I'm, are you up or down? I'm upstairs. Nice. Duh. Yeah. Come um, on. She's <laughs> if you had windows, I'm looking at you. I'm like, where are the windows? Oh, I'm, I'm like sitting in front of one. Uh, There's two it. in the kitchen and they're just in front of me. I'm just like yes. no sane person would ever choose the bottom unit. Well, thank goodness I didn't because of the situation down there. And so for those listening, I had a sewage backup downstairs, which cause is still unknown. And it flooded a lot of the carpet. So I just the other day personally went down there, ripped out all the carpet and threw it out. I was thinking my neighbors probably thought I killed people because I was lugging these huge black (laughs) contractor bags out my front door and I had black rubber boots on and gloves and knee pads. And I was hauling black bags onto my front lawn that were really, really heavy. And it looks... It doesn't look good. Just these piles of black bags on my Not a good look for money, honey, Rachel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I'm only, I don't think it's going to put me too far behind my projected launch date. I think I'll just, I think I'll get it all figured out within the next one to two weeks. So are you going to put carpet back down there or are you like, no, I'm so nervous. What do I do? I'm nervous because there wasn't a clear cause as to why this happened. And so I'm nervous it's going to happen again. So I think what I'm going to do for now, there's still, uh, the whole living room is still carpeted because that wasn't affected, luckily. So that's fine. I think I'm going to paint the concrete and just put down a bunch of really nice, like oversized big rugs because that way, if it happens again, it's idea. not a big deal. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually, like once I'm good and we're good and I know everything's fine, I'll maybe put more flooring in. Yeah. But I just want to be cautious right now. So that's what I'm thinking. Did you have it like jet, like roto rootered out? Like, did you have someone go in and just, like, scope it. it yeah and clean um it. i've had it scoped by three different plumbers now and they're like this looks great your pipes are in great condition i'm gonna have them cleaned though yeah so that's gonna be like 500 dollars just to have them it's called descaling or hydrojetted that's what i'm yeah. gonna have done i always tell people the number one person on your team for real estate investing is a good plumber i don't know why yeah. it's always plumbing issues I called every plumber in Denver at this point. So I got, I got a lot. <laughs> it's always something with plumbing. But moving forward, because we, we have you for a limited time because we know how much you value your time and we're so appreciative. <laughs> so, okay. So for people out there who are still like thinking, 
this is awesome, but like I could never do something like that or like I don't have the money. What's something that you would tell someone listening? advice? I would say, okay, I also used to think money was an obstacle. And I used to think you had to have 20 or 25% down to buy a property. So literally every property I bought, I came up with 20 or 25% down because I didn't know about all these other strategies, which is crazy. So that's what I did. But now if I knew then what I know now, I could have gotten started years earlier. And don't get me wrong. I bought my first duplex at age 24. That's pretty good. (laughs) So I'm not complaining. But there's all these strategies like DSCR loans and seller financing and house hacking and wholesaling and the Burr method and silent partner and private lenders and hard money lenders. So many strategies. You don't need money to invest in real estate. I think that's one of the biggest myths. You just don't need money. So I think the hardest part is finding a good deal. And if you can find a good deal, you will find the money to close on that deal and to buy that deal. Mm -hmm. So that's, and I know that's like, you know, you're listening is like, well, easy for you to say, Rachel, you just got to trust me on this one. (laughs) And especially when you network well and you have people and you know people, I mean, that's important. Networking goes along with it as well, but money is, is typically not the hardest part and not the biggest problem. It's typically a limiting belief. So you just have to let that go and you have to move forward and start taking action regardless of how much money you have right now. So that's my biggest piece of advice. And I want to give another piece of advice just because this is something that's come up a lot lately with some of my own clients and followers and people that I coach is just around mindset. Because if you're going to be discouraged or want to give up when the first small obstacle or problem comes up, you're not going to make it. Like you're not going to make it as a real estate investor. It's hard and nothing goes perfectly. And every week I have another problem at my property, like the tenant's laundry machine not working and me calling LG 500 times and then the sewage backup. And then, you know, I could name so many issues just from the last month. And so if you're frustrated because your realtor is not calling you back and, you know, to me, I'm like, well, find another realtor. Exactly. Right. Like you can't let those things stop you or discourage you. You have to have a solutions-oriented mindset if you want to become a successful real estate investor. Yes, I always say you have to be a problem solver. I'm like shaking my head so vigorously. I'm getting like whiplash over here, but everything you're saying is so true. I'm like, okay, I just want to say, because we're very like transparent on this podcast and I know this is can be bad, but like if you're not a problem solver and you don't like dealing with issues that come up, like maybe real estate investing just isn't for you or you can like invest in a syndication or something because shit's Mm -hmm. gonna come up nonstop. I mean it's totally worth it like and stuff I guess doesn't always go wrong but like there's a lot of issues that come up that you have to deal with yeah all the time and even when you have a property manager it's not 100% passive regardless of what people like online will say it's all there's always going to be an aspect of manage the manager and stuff is always going to go wrong so if like a broken window or a broken door is going to ruin your whole day, then you either need to rethink this or you need to change your mindset around it. I mean, because when I, when this sewage thing happened the other day, like I had a friend over to my house, we were having this nice night and that's when I saw it downstairs and I was like, oh shit, you know, pun intended. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, whatever. And of course, at first I was just shocked, like, oh my God, what do I do? But then I just, at that point, I couldn't do anything. It was at like nine o'clock on a Friday night. What am I going to do? So I was like, okay, well, I'll deal with it in the morning. And you just, you can't let it like ruin your day. You just have to 
call people and figure it out and move on. So I think that's my biggest piece of advice. Totally agree. Couldn't have said that better. So if people are listening, listen extra hard to that. But (laughs) Rachel, so moving forward, what are you going to be up to? And then also, where can people get a hold of you and find out what you're going to be up to next? Oh, thank you. What I'm looking forward to, I'm going on a hundred mile hike in Europe with my sisters in six weeks. So I've been training for that. I just hiked not my first 14er, but my first solo 14er in Colorado. And I was really proud of myself. Wait, you were by yourself? Uh, yeah, it was my sixth 14er I've done, but my first one I done I did alone. Thank you. Good. Wow. You're amazing. Thank you so much. I love to hike. I love to travel. I have travel planned. I don't know what I'll do next work-wise. I I just kind of follow my passions. And as long as it's fun and easy and it makes me money, I do it. And if not, I don't do it. So, I mean, I feel very, very lucky and I'm grateful every day. And I remind myself of that a lot. So that is... That's next for me. That's kind of a boring answer, but <laughs> no, I love it. And then, okay, so if people want to find you, get a hold of you, where are you at? Thank you. So, both of my books, Money, Honey, and Passive Income Aggressive Retirement, are on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audio. And my Instagram is Money, Honey, Rachel. And what I would love to do for your followers and listeners is if anyone wants to download my Passive Income Starter Kit, I will give that for free. So, you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash passive income to download that. Thank you. We will make sure that's also linked in the show notes as well. So thank you, Rachel, so much for being on. I'm like, do you have, are you taking applications for best friends? Because I yes. want it. <laughs> Wait, I was going to say the same thing. We need to hang out. You guys are so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. Let's be yeah. friends. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you loved today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check us out and join our community at womeninvestinrealestate.com and follow us on Instagram at wirewithtwoeyes.community.